this is something that is still fresh in our minds. I remember uh, when the news were letting us know that these individuals were trying to make it afloat and trying to make it back to the surface. And they only had, I believe, 92 hours of oxygen, which would have lasted them to Thursday of that week. And I remember from that Tuesday and that Wednesday praying all day, asking God to please help people find them because they, they thought that they were stranded at the bottom of the ocean. But what they came to realize later is that um, they were not, um, they had not survived. And that on June 18th, the Titan had imploded. And there's a history, a lot of things came, af came up afterwards that um, made this truly a, an even bigger tragedy. Um, the information that came afterwards um, said that the Titan, because the Titan op operated in international waters and did not carry passengers from a port, it was not subject to safety regulations. It's amazing how individuals uh, find loopholes, um, and unfortunately, these loopholes create harm. The vessel was not certified as seaworthy by any regulatory agency or third-party organization. And for you to get on this thing cost you $250,000. So it was quite an investment for something that is not quite safe. And of course, the people that made it tell you, oh, our tests show that this is very safe. Um, in 2018, this is not new. This is some, five years ago. Ocean Gate's Director of Marine Operations, David Lockridge, composed a report documenting safety concerns he had about Titan. In court documents, Lockridge said that he had urged the company to have Titan assessed and certified by an agency, but OceanGate had declined to do so, citing an unwillingness to pay. It costs money to get certified by third parties, and we don't want to spend that kind of money. He also said that the transparent uh, viewpoint on its forward end due to its non-standard and therefore experimental design was only certified to a depth of 1,300 meters or 4,300 feet, only a third of the depth required to reach the Titanic. This is where they were wanting to make money, a little submarine that would take you and you could see the, the Titanic uh, wreckage and see it yourself, not through a video or et cetera. And there were people that were willing to pay for that, and this company wanted to cash in on that. But the problem was that this little submarine was only able, at least the glass that through which the guests would be looking through, was only capable of sustaining the pressure of a third way down. According to Lockridge, RTM would only show when a component is about to fail, often milliseconds before an implosion. And that is exactly what happened to the Titan. OceanGate said that Lockridge, who was not an engineer, had refused to accept safety approvals from OceanGate's engineering team, and that the company's evaluation of Titan's hull was stronger than any kind of third-party evaluation Lockridge thought necessary. OceanGate sued Lockridge for allegedly breach breaching his confidentiality contract and making fraudulent statements. In other words, you're letting us know that there's something wrong here, and we are going through loopholes, and we don't appreciate that because we're going to lose a lot of money. Um, he, uh, this uh, same individual sent an email, um, actually Rob McCollum, the leading deep sea exploration specialist, emailed this company letting them know that they were putting their clients at risk, that there were safety concerns, that there was a danger, dangerous dynamic. And it's interesting, uh, the last statement says, in your race to Titanic, you are mirroring that famous catch cry she is unsinkable. And after McCollum sent that email to OceanGate, OceanGate's lawyers threatened McCollum with legal action. We don't want to hear it. It's safe. The carbon fiber will work. The carbon fiber will do just fine. Our tests show that a carbon fiber will do just fine. On a podcast, um, the one who will be piloting the Titan uh, some time back said, you know, at some point, safety is just a pure waste. I mean, if you just want to be safe, don't get out of bed. Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. At some point, you're going to take some risk. And it really is a risk-reward question. I think 
I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. The more the news divulged and explored and investigated, the greater the tragedy became because it's not something that happened uh, without any warnings, without any unprecedented um, concerns and people voicing their concerns. Um, And so beyond the, the reluctance to pay, there were five precious lives that were lost. Scientists, individuals that had um, a lot of experience, but more than anything, there were people that had families. And um, a wife, the wife of a Shazda Dawood, had given up her seat, her space in that submarine so that their son, their 19-year-old son, Suleiman Dawood, would be in that submarine. So the tragedy just compounded as you saw the life of a young individual uh, with all their life ahead of them, with so much potential. And because of false assertions, this is safe. This is safe. Don't worry. It hasn't been tested. It hasn't been certified, but it's safe. Um, If you had $250,000 to burn, would you go in this little submarine? There was a reporter that was offered uh, to come into this. I think he, um, he also worked for National Geographic, and he turned it down. It was surreal for him to realize that he could have been down there as well. When are we safe? How do we know we are safe? These individuals are not gullible individuals. They are highly intelligent, highly competent scientists and business individuals. How were they convinced that they could get into a a contraption that had not been certified nor uh, tested as it should have been and feel it was safe because someone convinced them and gave them false assurance that it was safe. In the end times, we um, we cannot afford to be wrong in regards to where we are spiritually. We need certainty. And this is where we're going to be spending our evening studying about the certainty of being protected in the end time. Revelation 6, 12 through 17, we read, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of air, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. We read this opening night as we closed. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Opening night, we read up to this point. Um, before we go, uh, continue reading, uh, this is the end of chapter 6, but we, we have to understand this. When John wrote the book of Revelation, he was not, think, he, he was not writing. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom God gave to his angel. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. The, the verses, those, those um, uh, referencing tools, were added centuries later by the Christian church. But John did not write chapter and verses. He wrote a continuous document. So sometimes it's very helpful for reference sakes, but sometimes it can help us to create divisions where divisions are not. Meaning a chapter ends and a new chapter begins. And because we are used to having our books with a chapter ends, so you not have something else that you want to be discussing, it's not so with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a continuum of thoughts and ideas. Chapter 6 ends with this question, who shall be able to stand? The question is not left hanging. The question is answered in chapter 7. It's, it's not simply that God wanted this division <clears throat> there. We've added it for reference's sake. But we have to be careful that sometimes we don't separate meaning or connectedness where it actually is one unified flow. Who shall be able to stand? Here's the answer to that question. When God shows his glory, when the heavens are open 
And individuals are recognizing that they were in a titan and now their world is imploding. Their reality is falling apart. They were convinced God was not real. They were convinced that there was no, no um, accountability for the choices that we make. Um, how can humans, where can humans find the ability, the power, what it is necessary so they can stand? Revelation 7, 1 through 4 is the answer. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having, here it is, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have done what? Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Um, in a future night, we're going to be studying an entire night on the 144,000. Tonight, we're focusing on the repetition that who shall be able to stand? Those that have received what? The seal of God, the seal of the living God. So at this point, we're going to pause, and I want to just present to you what questions lend themselves quite easily at this point, given what we have just read. Who shall be able to stand? Those that have been sealed with the seal of the living God. What, what potential questions could we have at this juncture of our study? What is the seal? That's a very important question, identifying what it is. And there's an even more important question. How? Where? How can I get it? Right? It's not enough to just know what it is. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, that's nice. No. If that's what it is, then I would like one, please. I would like to know how. And these are the questions that we're going to be addressing tonight. What is the seal of God? We'll leave the 144,000 for a future presentation. When does the sealing take place? And of course, how can I receive God's seal? This is what we're going to be exploring in this first presentation. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 for me affords one of the easiest, simplest biblical answers to the question, what is the seal of God? Paul says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has done what? Sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.13, in, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So several other verses that allude to this and in the Old Testament is the same thing. But here Paul just lays it out quite explicitly, quite simply and clearly, that when believers believe, they experience the sealing. And the sealing is really who? The Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So, there it is. It's the Holy Spirit. Have a good night. <laughs> what question could we ask at this juncture of the study? We've gone through who is able to stand, those that are sealed. What is the sealed? Now we've identified the seal. What other questions did we leave hanging out there? When and how? Because I want to be able to receive the Holy Spirit. You can say, well, I think I've received it. Well, I think the Titan is safe too. God doesn't want Christians living their Christian life with a high level of certainty. Yes, I kind of think sort of I am. You know, if I, I know that uh, how many parents do we have here this, this evening? If, if I was to ask uh, Rob, if I were to ask Ezra, his son, Ezra, is Rob your dad? I'm pretty sure he is. How would that make Rob feel? Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's my dad. If I were to hear my daughters tell to someone, yeah, Pastor Ariel, we're pretty sure he's our father. 
But many Christians are comfortable answering that question when it comes to, are you sealed with the Holy Spirit? I'm pretty sure I am. I think I am. God doesn't want humans getting into a titan of faith because it will implode when the pressure at the end of time comes. It will not hold. When we believe and trust and receive the gospel, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the Holy Spirit, really. If you want certainty, if you want to know if if this is an experience that you have had, if this is an experience you want to have, then you know what to expect. Um, you, You know that this is what will take place for the individual that is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Let's just ask the question, what is the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life? Why is being sealed with the Holy Spirit so important? So let's begin. Jesus himself actually gives us some of the clearest and broadest explanations of the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 5 through 8 says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, the Holy Spirit will do three things. Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the primal work of the Holy Spirit. Convict the entire world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So you know that the experience of the Holy Spirit will accompany a conviction in your life of sin, my sins, Christ's righteousness, and the ultimate judgment based on my choice in regards to my sins and the righteousness of Christ. It will um, determine what happens in the end. And the Holy Spirit will guide me through that process. The Holy Spirit is not simply saying, you're wrong, so what is your choice now? That's not how the Holy Spirit works. And there's something that the Holy Spirit will use, something that Christianity really struggles with, like I said at the beginning of this presentation. 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin, since the Holy Spirit is going to convict me of sin, what what is that? How how can we identify what sin is? Um, 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin, also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. The King James uh, captures um, the, the, the force of the Greek when it says sin is the transgression of what, my friends? The law. Sin is the transgression of the law, and if the Holy Spirit, the primal work of the sealer, the one that seals believers, if the, 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 the initial step is to convict of sin, guess what the Holy Spirit is going to use to convict us of sin? The law. Because sin is the transgression of the law. So how important is the law in relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit in human human life? Crucial. Which, here it is. God's holy law. Um, Many of us are uh, quite familiar with it, but to kind of refresh us in regards to its content... Um, if you would be willing, I'm going to read out loud all of them, and I would like to invite you to join me in reading out loud the Ten Commandments, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Christianity has a love-hate relationship with the law. More than ever, especially over the last couple of decades, Christianity has been quite confused. From pulpits, Christian pulpits 
of various denominations, Christians have heard and demanded that the U.S. would leave God's law in our courtrooms. Um, there was one in, in a southern state right now, I can't remember if it was Georgia or Tennessee, where someone had, was going was to sue the state because they had the tablets of the Ten Commandments inside a courtroom, and they were like, that's religion, and we need, I want separation of church and state. And the judge said, no, no, it's going to stay. And then, of course, churches rallied around because, hey, we want the law in our courtrooms. Um, if, you go to the, if you go to Washington, D.C., some of the buildings that we have in Washington, D.C., have the engraving of Moses with the tablets in there. Some Christians, a lot of Christians, are very happy to see that. But from those same pulpits that would encourage members to vote for representatives, that would um, keep the law of God in our courtrooms, from those very same pulpits, you will hear statements such as, we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. The law has been nailed to the cross. You've heard them too. And so from one end, we're hearing the law has been done away with. God's law is done because now we're under grace. But God's law is so good, we want it in our courtrooms. We want it in our schools, public schools. Well, which is it? Are Christians supposed to chuck the law, avoid the law? Is the law a curse? Is the law bringing bondage? Or is the law a good thing that Christians should not feel uncomfortable with? I know my Lutheran friends would have a challenging time trying to answer these questions because of the things they've been hearing. It's not by works. It's not, it's not by works. It's by faith. So no, 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 no. Nothing that even looks like work. And the law is a lot of work. And actually, if anyone tries to tell you that um, you ought to be trying to not lie, to, to, not, to be faithful to your spouse, they're putting you in bondage. They want you to be in bondage. And of course, we know that that's not true. But this is the state of many Christians today. Loving the law and hating the law and being unsure. What is my relationship to it? The Bible doesn't want us to be confused in regards to God's law. The problem is when we relate to the law incorrectly. When we expect certain things from the law that the law was never designed. So tonight, we're, we're, we're making this uh, systematic progression of who shall be able to stand those that have the seal of God. The seal of God is the Holy Spirit in the presence of the believer. And the work of the Holy Spirit is a very monumental one. It convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if the Holy Spirit is going to convict any human being of sin, since sin is a transgression of the law, the Holy Spirit uses the law to convict of sin. But if we remove the law, then we have problems. So now let us ask the question about the law. We've understood now the seal, the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the law for? Why did God give humanity the law? Romans 7, 7 says, What shall I say then? Is the law sin? <laughs> no. It seems that Paul had the same problems or similar problems back then. There, were, there was confusion. Is the law bad or good? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through what? The law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said what? You shall not. So what law is being spoken of right here, specifically? The Ten Commandments. It's just unequivocal. This is not the ceremonial law. This is God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. And Paul is saying, I would not have known that coveting is sin unless the law had said coveting is sin. The law informs me of what is sin. The Holy Spirit convicts me of what is sin. There's a difference between the two. When you are informed of something, you can keep doing it. When you know that something is wrong, you can still do it. Do you know of people that smoke? Do you know of people that smoke that know that smoking is bad for them? Why are they still smoking? Do you know of people that no, it's wrong to lie, and yet lie. One thing is to know it is a wholly different thing to be convicted. Conviction of the Holy Spirit transcends reason and intelligence. It opens our understanding 
to what true morality is. And it opens our understanding to, to, to a realm that as, as humans, we rarely explore. We rarely, rarely give ourselves an opportunity to explore and understand more fully. See, we, we, um, we are horrible at trying to develop morality. We want to quantify evil. And so if I were to talk about lying, many of us would be tempted to say, I don't lie hardly at all. Well, that's a titan. I'm pretty sure I'm almost honest. What the Holy Spirit says is, when you lie, it is not an act. You are revealing who you are. You are revealing character. And the only people that lie are liars. When the Holy Spirit paints it that way, that one lie changes. And it begins to reveal that there is inside of me a deep-seated conviction that there are moments in life that what will solve my problems is a lie. Therefore, I will justify using deception when it's for my benefit. And the Holy Spirit says, people that behave that way are liars and deceivers. Is that who you want to become? Because doing is becoming. That's the difference of conviction. Conviction um, removes our justifying the the wrongs that we do. And and conviction removes the quantifying that we try to do. We try to do this balancing act. Well, yeah, I told a lie, but you know, I saw a turtle on the road and I rescued it. So I kind of equalized that, right? Good behaviors kind of compensates for bad behaviors, that's every pagan religion. And Christianity is not a pagan religion. Christianity is a religion of grace. Christianity is a religion of faith. The economy is completely different. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. The Holy Spirit and the law. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. And what will the Holy Spirit use to convict the world of sin? We've already discussed this. The only thing that he can use, the Ten Commandments. Romans 6, 14. Let's continue exploring this because we need to recognize how does the law relate to the gospel? Does the law make void the gospel? If I believe the gospel, should I chuck the law? Can the law and the gospel cohabit with each other in a Christian experience? Romans 6.14 says, for, what is the next word, friends? Sin. It's important. That word in that place is important. For sin shall not have what? Dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. And what many Christians distort this verse to say is, For the law shall not have dominion over you. When Paul says, for sin will not have dominion over you. You're not under the law. You are under grace. The law cannot help you with sin's dominion over you. But the grace of God can. The grace of God can set you free from the enslaving, dominating control of sin over your life so that by the grace of God, you are given a supernatural power to resist temptation, to be honest, to be faithful, to be committed. So whereas before I transgressed the law of God, by the grace of God, now I keep the law of God. Therefore, I am not under the law. I am not longer under the condemnation of the law. So, In the next uh, verse, Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. If If we were to paraphrase that with synonymous expressions, we would have to conclude that Paul would say, what then? Shall we sin? Shall we transgress the law? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not, meaning we obey. If I am under grace, the grace of God gives me the power to obey. And that is an amazingly good news. We have a great propensity for loving pagan economic religions. 
because it puts us in control. We have we become like stockbrokers, you know. Um, if if I if I commit this, then I can do this, and it equalizes, and and we're trading, and and the stock market of sin goes up and down as we get older. Because I do this, I, I, I give offerings and these other things, then I can do this in my life because I'm doing some good things. I mean, when we look at um, next weekend, starting tomorrow actually, but on the uh, pre- future presentations, when we look at the history of the church, this is the fail of the Christian church throughout the century, especially the 5th, 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th century. We, we began to quantify evil and develop a system of checks and balances in which the priest was the accountant and they kept tallies of sins and acts of penance and acts of righteousness to kind of pay off your debts. Pilgrimages and penance and all these things that don't remove the dominion sin has over your heart and mind. It, this the Wednesday last Wednesday's presentation. If you haven't seen that, I want to highly encourage you for you to see that presentation, um, in which we I explore this idea that somehow you are under you are in control of your life, and Paul would disagree with that in Romans when he would say, "The good things that I want to do, I don't do those things, and the things that I hate, I find myself doing that." Why? We explore that that evening. That is being under the dominion of, dominion of sin. We don't want to do bad things, but we do it because there's a force, there's a power that distorts how we see the world, leading us to make wrong decisions. I was trying to, my daughters were asking me that that evening. Can you explain a little bit more? So I said to them, remember when we go to Myers and you get those shopping carts that one of the, the wheels is wounded? And it's constantly leaning this direction. And you want it to go straight. What, what must you do for the shopping cart to go straight? Compensate by pushing really hard in the opposite direction. So you're pushing in this direction because the shopping cart wants to go in that direction so that you can go in this direction. And it's exhausting. <laughs> Amen. And that's what God's grace offers us. One that's motorized. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, where? Into their hearts. And in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. This is righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, but what was the second thing he convicts us of? Righteousness. This is it right here. It doesn't have the word in it, but that's the experience. Um, you've read the verse. It's in the screen. It's in your handout. Who does the writing? the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is the seal of God. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, makes you aware of the things in your life that are transgressing God's law. And when you receive that conviction, because there's no force. I mean, there's, there's passion. There's conviction. There's a desire. But God will not put me in a headlock and say, I know you're sorry, so let's go. God will, actually, I, I'm, for my morning devotions, I'm doing Psalms 32, and there's language that David uses in that psalm that would seem violent, but it's not. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. You know why David felt this way? Because he kept silent. He would not confess his sin. He was being convicted, convicted, I convicted, and he kept justifying it, and his pride kept preventing him from saying, it is me, Lord, it is me, I'm the problem here. And when, when David suppressed the convictions of the Holy Spirit, he was miserable. 
But God was not putting his hand heavy upon David because he wanted to suffocate David. He wanted to keep David in a static place because if, when we are under conviction of sin and we don't convince, confess it and surrender it, we will injure people. It's like a friend grabbing, going up to you and snatching your car keys because you're drunk. And your friend saying, no, you're not going to drive. You're not going to be driving. I won't, I won't let you. That's so mean of you. You took my car keys. I love you. And the Holy Spirit is the force that convicts us. And I'm almost sure that every single one of us here has had this experience in the past where some behaviors that you did that didn't bother you anymore, you come to the law of God and then the law of God begins to shed light into your lifestyle and practices. And then all of a sudden you're up at night with your eyes open and someone is replaying a scene of that day where you lost your temper, where mean, cruel words were spoken, where anger was not restrained, and hurts were done. And here you were planning to go to sleep just fine and dandy, while someone somewhere else is weeping because of your words. And then the Holy Spirit, weirdly, reminds you of a sermon you've heard a long time ago in which a certain a pastor or a Sabbath school teacher or an elder in the sermon said, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And now your eyes get big and your heart begins to feel conviction. And it's late and you have to get up the next morning and it's happened to me that I'm tossing and turning and I get out of bed. Honey, are you still awake? I know she's not. But I'm under conviction. And she's hurt. And now I know, I know who's done it. I'm a jerk. I'm so sorry. I should have never said those things to you. I am sincerely sorry. Before you say those words, is misery. The moment those words come out, how do you feel? You get convicted of sin, and then you get convicted of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is not a big no machine. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't. That's not the Holy Spirit. Yes, there are things the Holy Spirit will convict us to stop, but the Holy Spirit will not leave your life a vacuum with a whole bunch of no's hanging in there. The Holy Spirit will teach you how to live righteously, because we don't. We don't know how to reconcile. Because, you know, in my selfish state, when I apologize, I immediately expect to be forgiven. Hey, I said I'm sorry. What's wrong? You're, you're not a Christian. Haven't you read 70 times 7? <laughs> then you get all biblical, right? But when it's conviction, you say I'm sorry. That's it. And then you let God's spirit work in the other person's heart. And however long it takes, afterwards you're holding hands and you're hugging and there may be some tears, but you sleep different. Where would we be if the Holy Spirit was not working in our lives? Our relationships would fall apart in no time. We don't have the capacity that's why the seal of God is not simply, oh, I want to be able to stand when Jesus comes. The reason people are able to stand then is because they're learning to stand now. And to stand right now means I stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of his convictions, in the power of realizing I know where that path will lead me. I, I, I'm learning a different way. I'm learning the life of righteous living. I prefer righteousness than sin.
John 14, 15, if you, if you are terrified of me, terrified of my lightnings, my earthquakes, and the plagues, those seven last plagues, if you are terrified of that, then you obey me, right? No. No, that's why this morning's message um, I, is one of my favorites because it dispels those myths that prophecy is designed to scare humans. No, prophecy is designed to reveal a God of love, a God of mercy and compassion because Paul says that it is those things that lead us to repentance. If you love me, keep my commandments. Romans 13, 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to do what, church? To... Love one another, for he who loves another has done what? <laughs> Fulfilled the law. Again, here's another verse that is beautiful, but man, oh man, do we distort them. Christian friends have said to me, see, there you go. The law has been done away with. We are Christians. Our law is now just love, 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 love. But the verse doesn't end there. <laughs> the verse continues. And what does Paul say as we continue? For the... <laughs> Commandment. <laughs> Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. What is Paul quoting right here? The Ten Commandments. And Paul is saying that the, the Ten Commandments is how you show your love. And if there be any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So please resist the temptation or, or erase from your mind these statements that somehow the Christian has now the law of love and the Old Testament people had the, the Ten Commandments. That is a humongous fallacy, a conclusion that has no biblical foundation whatsoever. Love is expressed when I respect your property and I don't take what doesn't belong to me. By the way, since we're on the subject of law, um, where is it? I found this on a sidewalk out there. It's an Apple Watch. And so, thou shalt not lie, right? You will not say, oh, it's mine, it's mine. Um, you shall not steal either. I, I'm not going to keep this. I need to find its owner. So, if you're the owner of a male Apple Watch, um, please see me afterwards. And um, if, if it belongs to you. And I'm going to keep asking to see who, who this belongs to. Now that I'm looking at it, I think I know who it belongs to. I think. But we'll see. But wouldn't it be a temptation to say it's mine? How would I know? I wouldn't. Oh, it's yours? Here. But you know what would happen to your character? I would never know. I'd be like, I'm so glad that so-and-so lost their Apple Watch and now they have it back. But if it wasn't your Apple Watch and no one ever find out, that's not the worst thing that could happen to you for someone to find out and end up in jail. Actually, the worst thing that could happen to you is for you to steal something and never get caught. Because then you'll hear a word that says, man, you're good. And people that steal things, what are they called? Thieves. Who wants to be a thief? Who wants to have a character of a thief? You know, liar, thieves. You know, Jesus described one person with those characteristics in the Gospels. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Who was that thief in the context of Jesus' statements? Satan. Thief, a liar. You are of your father, the devil, because he was a liar and he is the father of lies. When I adopt these characteristics, I am deforming myself to become like Satan. These are satanic attributes 
that the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, I would be quite comfortable in stealing and being happy that I don't get caught. I steal a friend's toy here. I steal someone's pencil over there. Ooh, I like that person. Things over here. Um, I shared earlier how uh, a major chain in our in our nation, Target, is having to close and shrink their storage footage um, because of stealing, rampant stealing. People with all the sensors and all the tags and all the computers and cameras, people are figuring out how to steal. Which means that they're they're going home and they don't realize that. They are transforming themselves into a character that is wholly incompatible with heaven. And by their own choices, they are excluding themselves from the company of all the saved, and they're excluding themselves from the gift of eternal life by choice. This is why the seal of the Holy Spirit is so important. Because character can be so deformed that when Jesus comes, we're afraid of him. We're terrified of him. But those that are sealed by the Holy Spirit, when they see Jesus, they rejoice. He is the one that changed my heart. He is the one that transformed my character. He is the one that wrote his law in my heart. He is the one that allowed me to experience that supernatural experience. That though at one time I was a rebel, now I love him. Therefore, I obey him. That is the miracle that the Holy Spirit brings about in our lives. This is the covenant experience, that God's law gets written into my heart and into my mind that we just read recently from Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. John 14, 15, if you love me, and Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by who? So the love that Jesus is speaking of is not your love or my love. It's very whimsical. Our, our commitments, uh, one Christian writer calls it um, as uh, ropes of sand. Our promises to God are as solid <laughs> and lasting as ropes of sand. But when the Holy Spirit begins the sealing process in me, the Holy Spirit doesn't become my puppeteer and I just become like a robot controlled by the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit works with my reason, my intelligence, and my memory, and my emotions to begin to dispel the deceptions of sin, the distortion that, that sin has brought to my life. And I now begin to see things that add up and actions with consequences that add up. This morning we talked about David. David is wondering, my plan's not working. What's wrong? People are not cooperating with me. This Bathsheba thing, man, why did she get pregnant? Oh man, she's just messing things up. It was just supposed to be a one-time affair. This is not part of my plan. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't see cause to effect. And we steal, and then we are shocked we're in jail. We are unfaithful, and they wonder why our marriage is falling apart. We disobey our parents and wonder, why do I have so many regrets? Because sin distorts how you see reality, how you see life. We have no capacity because of sin to see a clear path from cause to effect. But when the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin, righteousness, and judgment, it's not simply, oh, if I do this, I do bad things, or bad things will happen, is this doesn't bring honor to God. The God who loved me so, the Father in heaven who loved me so, that gave his son for me. And like Joseph in Egypt, it's not because I might get fired, it's not because if we get caught, I'll be in jail or killed, Is how could I do this sin in the sight of God? That's why Joseph said no to Potiphar's wife had nothing to do with his job employment. In fact, he knew that by him rejecting her, his working days at Potiphar's house were over. How could I do this evil before my God? It's love. It's not fear of punishment. It's love born from the Holy Spirit, the love of God poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit that compels me to make the choices that outside of this, I would never be able to do them with pure motives, with true sincerity. 
How and when do we receive the Holy Spirit in this special way? Acts 2, 38 and 22, 16. I wish I would have known this. Um, I wish I would have understood this early on in my Christian journey. It was not until almost in my 30s that this finally clicked in my head. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be what? Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. (sighs) I wish a pastor would have shown me this verse. When I got baptized at the age of 11, I hesitated. I didn't want to, honestly. I didn't want to get baptized because in my mind, baptism meant now I really have to behave. Before, I could lie all I want, but after baptism, I have to decrease my RPMs of lying and beating up my younger brother and lying to my parents and watching this and doing that. Man, if I get baptized, will I be even allowed to have fun? So I didn't want to get baptized. I had no clue what baptism meant. And you know what? Some of the behaviors of the adults in the church that I grew up with reinforced that wrong belief. Because after my baptism, sometimes during prayer meeting, I would be downstairs with my friends. We're like, can I go to the bathroom? 30 minutes later, we're still down there horsing around. And then a deacon comes down there and says, hey, what's this hustling and bustling down here? It sounds like horses down here. What, what's going on? Oh, oh, it's, it's the, the elder son, Ariel. Weren't you baptized a month ago? You gotta behave. You've been baptized. And that's part of the reason why I just think, didn't think Christianity was real because it wasn't working for me. I got rebaptized at the age of 19. I really wanted to love God. I really wanted to be a Christian. It's just that, you know, Jesus doesn't say baptize. Jesus says make disciples. It's a big difference. And when you only baptize someone and you don't disciple them, it's like giving birth and never feeding the baby. It's like giving birth and never holding and cuddling the baby. It's going to die. And I died. He was at 28 years old. That by the pro- <laughs> Humans may fail, but God remains faithful. And churches may not do things right. They may mean well, but they don't do things right. But God does things right. And the Holy Spirit is working universally upon every human heart. The Holy Spirit refused to let me live a life with spiritual lies, feeling the pressure and the failure and the pain of failure again and again. But when I understood this, wait a minute. I had it backwards. Baptism is not me telling God from here on out, I'm going to really, 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 really try to be like 99% obedient. Baptism is the confession that Jesus is divine and I am the branch. And I'm choosing to have him abide in me and I will abide in him. Because when that happens, I will bear much fruit. Because I know from experience that separated from Christ, I can do nothing. But in Christ, I can do all things. It's quite simple. So when I heard Pastor Louis Torres, at the end of my training on how to be a soul winner, (laughs) recognizing I'm starting to get the ABCs of this, I heard this Holy Spirit saying, we've been waiting for this moment. We've never left you. It ached us to see you not understanding how the gospel works. But now you know that baptism means God is committing to saving you. And you are going to let him. You are going to respond to the Spirit, prompting to get up in the morning and spend time in prayer, opening the Bible. You're going to claim promises that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And that God's love gets poured into your heart so that it is that love that actuates you into choices of morality, ethics, and obedience. 
And when that clicks and when the Holy Spirit clicks and when you understand faith, Christianity works 100% of the time because of the power of God. God is faithful. Sarah did not just get kind of pregnant with Isaac. She gave birth to a full baby because God fulfilled his promise. And if God promises to write his law in your heart, he will do it. It is a journey of us learning to let him because it is a painful reality to recognize that there are certain commandments we don't want God still. Not yet, Lord, not that one. Yeah, it's the Sabbath. Yeah, sure, because I like a day off. But the other ones, mm, ah, mm. And it takes time for us to let the Holy Spirit and say, yes, I'm realizing all sin brings heartache. All sin brings regret. So I don't want that. I want the whole law in my heart. I want the whole law. Write the whole law, God. It takes time. And to sustain that, it takes commitment and discipline. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Revelation 7, 9 through 14. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to God. Praise God. What a statement. What a reality. We are saved because of God, not because of me. He pursues his power, his persistence, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshiped him, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of great, the great tribulation and washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I want that robe. Anyone here wants to be washed? That's David's prayer, Psalms 51. Wash me and I shall be not white as snow, whiter that's the power of the blood of Jesus. You know, I'm from a town, a town called Tucumán in Argentina, and I didn't know this because I left when I was seven. I found this out from other Argentinians later on that we met in Washington, D.C. But we were like, where are you from? Where are you from? And I said, I'm from Tucumán. Everybody went, Whoosh. Found out that people from my city, we have a reputation of being thieves. <laughs> The, the joke in Argentina is if you go to um, Tucumán, take your wallet from your back pocket and put it in your front pocket. Or better yet, don't take your wallet because we'll still take it from either way. And we, we have skills. That's, they were telling me this thinking, that makes a lot of sense. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I was a very good thief. I remember being in elementary school in Bolivia and we had these um, lion plastic teeth that you put in your mouth. I don't want to look like a lion. And they were expensive, and my dad did not buy superfluous things like that. He was cheap. And so I learned that if I wanted a little truck that I know my dad would say no to, or in that case, those plastic fake teeth, I saw a friend in school that had one. And my brain, in about a two-minute, I knew how I would take, and I did, and I stole it. And I went home feeling happy. And I was already coming up with stories as to who, a friend of mine gave this to me. Because your parents ask, right? Where'd you get that from? Or so-and-so gave that to me. Hmm. That's character deformation. But when I allowed God's spirit to control my life, I was at a bed bath or one of those places where they have like lotions that smell, whatever. I trying to look something for my mom. I was looking at a chapstick, and I kept looking around, kept looking around, and inadvertently, without realizing, I walked out of the store with that thing in my hand. And almost out of the mall, I'm like, what is this doing? <gasps> you know what I did? I walked all the way back and confessed. <laughs> Don't call security, please. I took this, 
And the lady at the counter was like, and you came back? I want to be like Jesus. He is the truth. I want to be truth. I don't want to be a lie. I don't want to be a thief. I want to be like Jesus. And that is what the Holy Spirit does inside. Amen. I love this photo. I'm glad a friend of mine took it because it was not planned. I had asked the Lord, I had told the Lord, Pastor Torres had made an appeal three hours before this baptism. And he appealed for quite a bit of time and I kept saying, no, Lord, I failed you. Remember, I got baptized at 11 and I was baptized at 19. And I'm like, Lord, I've done this. I've been here before. I don't trust myself. I think I might fail you. And I went to my the dorm room and I wept because I could see the Holy Spirit drawing and tugging and saying, this is you right here. This is your moment. And I felt the drawn, the drawing of God's love at that moment. So I went and cried in my dorm and prayed. And I said, Lord, I don't want to fail you. I don't want to fail you. And God was like, Ariel, this is not the language that I want from you right now. What you need to know is that I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to fail you, Ariel. I am the one calling you because I am the one that can empower and transform you. All you need to commit to is to stay connected with me. If you do that, the rest is mine. I got up with peace. I wiped my eyes and I said, Lord, if Pastor Torres makes another appeal, he, he appealed for like 30 minutes and half my class went forward and we were going to go for the baptism of my classmates. If he makes another appeal, I will do it. Pastor Torres baptized all my friends and we were all weeping, singing hymns next to a, in a river that ran behind Mission College of Evangelism. Pastor Torres got quiet after the last baptism and said, I know I've appealed my heart out, but I think that there's someone else. That was it. That's all I needed. And I'm glad a friend took a picture and I'm glad I wrote the date of my baptism. It was on a Saturday evening. I needed that. I needed to know that my Christian walk didn't depend on my strength or my power, but on Jesus. And he has been faithful. We're going to pass out some decision cards. I don't want us to say, oh, that was nice, Pastor. So the seal of God is the Holy Spirit. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the initial experience that we have with the Holy Spirit is the day that we get baptized. All right. I want to leave in your hands the opportunity to make a decision similar to what I made in 1999. A decision to tell the Lord, I am no longer afraid because I'm learning to look to Jesus and not to myself. If I look to me, I will be afraid of failure, and I will. Like Peter looking at the waves, you cannot but sink. But when you keep your eyes on Christ, His power sustains you above the raging storm, and you will not sink. I will pray, and if the Spirit of God has prompted and expressed you, Respond with the various options. And one of them is, I would like preparation for baptism. And if that is something that you feel drawn to, I would encourage you to respond yes. Father in heaven, as we conclude this first session, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your providence. I want to thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I want to thank you for what it means to be sealed, Lord. Your law is the most beautiful thing we could ever experience. To be freed from the slavery of idolatry 
and to be a human being that can have loving, functional relationships. What a gift. Yes, Lord, write your law in my heart. Write your law in the heart of my brothers and sisters. All of it, Lord, in our hearts and minds. Pour your spirit into our heart, Lord, that we will obey out of love. Because we love you, we will keep. Father, correct our relationships. They're in continual need of tuning up. We revert back to the past. We revert to what we're familiar. We are like those shopping carts with those malfunctioning wheels. Lord Jesus, give us brand new wheels. Wheels that obey your voice, your word, and the convictions of your spirit. This is the gift and this is our desire this evening. And we ask for it in faith. In Jesus' name. Amen, Lord.